Welcome to another episode of Fear Not, the podcast that tells us why we are afraid of all the wrong things and oblivious to what can actually kill us. Trending fears this week? Don't fear global terrorism? Marie Kondo is wrong. Keep the clutter. Florida man finds robber in his kitchen making breakfast and told to go back to sleep. California high school does what no parent can, take the kid's phone away. Sam Smith wants to be called they or them. They, them, them, them and them, or they. We'll get to it. Barry's Fear of the Week, all the lies and distractions about climate change. That and so much more coming up on Fear Not. Today is gonna be a good day. Don't care what anybody else say. Oh, I don't need a budget cookie to tell me the way I'm feeling. Gonna be a good day. A good day. Welcome back to Fear Not. It is episode 17. I'm Alonzo Bowden here with my co-host, Dr. Good Day, Barry Glasner, the world's foremost expert on fear. Great to see you again, Lonzo. And speaking of it being a good day, I have to tell you, I heard from the mother of two of our youngest and I think most loyal listeners, their names, I'm told, are Simon and Annika. They live in Montana. And Alonzo, they apparently listen to every podcast. And I'm sure their parents love us for that. What you got coming up? If you want to know what I'm doing, just go to alonzoboden.com. Oh, and watch me on Amazon Prime, Heavy Lightweight. That's still streaming. And you can find me at barryglassner.com and elsewhere on social media. But mostly what I'm here for is to debunk fears, and so are you. And why do we do it? Well, we do it because we don't need more fears and scares. There are too many out there already. I want to thank our listeners. Our audience is growing, and we're hearing great things from you. So keep sharing and like us on the platform of your choice. Give us five stars. That's right. And we love answering your questions. So send us some more. On Twitter, you can do it at Fear Not Official, or you can email us at fearnotofficial at gmail.com. And while you're there, click on subscribe. Let's get this going. Here we go. Headline number one. 18 years after 9-11, new international terrorist threat. Question is, why is this new article talking about new international terrorist threats? Well, this international terrorist threat is actually homegrown. After a white supremacist gunman killed more than 20 people at an El Paso, Texas Walmart a month ago, he claimed a dubious honor for his cause. At that point, right-wing domestic terrorism became responsible for more deaths on U.S. soil than jihadi terrorism. These white domestic terrorists, that's the word they never use. They don't use the word terrorist. This guy was a terrorist. They, the guy at Walmart was a terrorist. The guy at the uh, park in California was a terrorist. The guys at the church. It, this is terrorism. You're, you're, you're trying to scare a certain group of people by killing members of that group. To, I'm not sure, but that, that sounds to me like the definition of terrorism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they will never use that word on white males. I hate to say it, Barry, but you are more dangerous than me. Exactly, Alonzo. Americans are willing to label violent acts committed by Muslims as terrorists, but violent acts committed by white people, they're not called that. They're called hate crimes. If we're lucky... They're called hate crimes because they're also very hesitant to even use that term. Look at what's been called hate crimes. The white supremacist shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue, 
the white supremacist murder of nine African Americans at a church in Charleston, South Carolina. All of these were called hate crimes. And yet the American Muslim army psychiatrist shooting 13 people in Texas and the Muslim driving his truck into bicyclists in New York City, those were labeled acts of terror. But even the hate crime, I'm telling you, they're hesitant to even use that. Attacks against members of uh, the LGBTQ community. And they're like, we'll have to study if this is a hate crime. What else would it be? You know, what else do the victims have in common or what other reason is there for attacking this victim? The reason we're talking about international terrorism here, even though it's committed in the United States, in the cases we've just talked about, is that many of these movements have active members throughout the world. And you know who those are bolstered by? They're bolstered by the rhetoric coming from somebody who's currently in the White House. Trump rode to power in part on anti-immigrant and racist sentiments. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. And there are other reasons that white supremacist terrorism is on the rise. Counterterrorism agencies have far more power to go after international terrorist groups than domestic terrorist groups in the U.S., no matter how lethal they are. And it's not just government agencies that are at fault. Social media companies are usually very aggressive in shutting down jihadis on their platforms, but they're far more cautious when it comes to white supremacists fearing backlash from their customers. And that's especially true in light of what's going on right now. According to the Anti-Defamation League, over the past decade, nearly three quarters of all extremist-related deaths in the U.S. can be linked to domestic right-wing terrorists. Only one quarter can be attributed to jihadist extremists. But I want to be sure that we keep a focus on another thing here. A lot of what we're talking about in this segment is, is disturbing, for sure. But we got to keep the larger picture in mind. If you ask the average American if we should be worried about international terrorism, what do you think they'd say? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, this was part of your book, The Culture of Fear. Yeah, it's very widespread. If you ask the average American, that's what they're going to say. Because, you know, the purpose of terrorism is to make everybody afraid. So if you hear the risk is one in one million, what do you think? You think... What if it's me? But the problem with that kind of thinking is not only, as the expression goes, that the terrorists win. The problem is also that you lose. So if you're busy worrying about low probability dangers, you're not going to be paying attention to more likely ones. Global terrorism has actually decreased significantly, especially in the last five years. According to the Global Terrorism Database, in 2014, 17,000 attacks worldwide occurred. In 2019, at least as of July, there were 1,250 global attacks. So if things stay on pace this year, there'll be a reduction of roughly 77%. A policy analyst at the Cato Institute, which for those of you who don't know, that's a conservative think tank in Washington. The chances of an American dying in a terrorist attack at home are exceptionally low, one in 3.2 million. I'm not sure that comes as a lot of comfort, frankly, to a lot of people, especially to families of those who've been victims of these attacks. I'm really sad about that. Terrorism, though, is designed to fill us with fear. If we lose track of that, we're really making a mistake because part of defeating terrorism is understanding why we're overestimating the danger. So this is my fear-busting 
tip of the week, because what experts in this field tell us is that we blow things out of proportion like this because they have these elements. First, immediacy. When a dramatic event like a terrorist attack or an airplane accident or a disease outbreak occurs, it feels more likely that it could happen again soon, regardless of whether that's supported by the facts or the situation. Second, the 24-hour news cycle. We overestimate risk if the event is seen in dramatic videos and pictures. And then third, normalcy is not news. We don't see people grocery shopping and working and being safe. Invisible dangers are especially scary to us. We feel at risk when we can't see evil coming at us. That's why we fear things like Ebola and terrorism. And then finally, there's what researchers call malicious intent. Perpetrators of terror are malicious people trying to kill us, and that adds to our fear even though their intent doesn't affect the likelihood of us dying at all. It works. It scares people. It keeps us scared. So what do you think, Barry? International terrorism. Fear or fear not? Fear not for yourself. The odds are low, but we need to keep combating it and especially domestic terrorism. Headline number two, the Marie Kondo method is great. That was a GQ headline from January 10th. Ten days after Marie Kondo's new TV series, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, premiered on Netflix. Eight months later, the Wall Street Journal had it a different way. The joy of clutter. What Marie Kondo got wrong. So which is it? Kondo goes to homes of average Americans in need of a major decluttering. She shows up with a translator because she speaks mostly in Japanese. Take a listen. This girl's no joke. This is amazing. Uh, we have too much stuff. It's official. It's so hard to let it go. I don't want to just, you know, dump it. I want to be thoughtful about it. Choose items that spark joy for you. Spark joy. She's been called the Michael Jordan of housekeeping by someone who's never seen Michael Jordan. <laughs> I do another show called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and we've talked about Marie Kondo over there. It's just this ridiculous idea of this woman coming in your house saying, love your home, throw out everything. Yeah, we, we have hoarders and we have people who have too much stuff. And we, you know, we all have stuff that we could get rid of. I get rid of clothes on a pretty regular basis. Um, hell, I get rid of cars on a pretty regular basis. But that's, that's a show for another that's day. That's another story. What do you think, Barry? Do you, do you have clutter? Is Marie coming to your house? I'm not going to answer that question because I'll get in trouble at home about my clutter. Her show's based on her book, uh, which uh, originally came out in 2011 and then in 2014 in the United States. It's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. It sold millions of copies in 30 countries. It's kind of a workbook. You know what I would love to find? Like she's made millions of dollars off of this book and you go to her house and her basement is just filled with junk. I would just love to find it. Hoarders from TLC are in her basement right now. Her unique decluttering process is called KonMari. You get it? Con for condo, Mari for Marie. So KonMari. We're going to save you the cost of the book, all right? Here are the rules of KonMari. 
And if we have some, you know, kind of soft music to put behind this, that would work so well. Commit yourself to tidying up. <laughs> Imagine your ideal lifestyle. Finish discarding first. Tidy by category, not location. Follow the right order. Ask yourself if it sparks joy. As a matter of fact, take a look at your mate and ask yourself, do they spark joy? And you will declutter your home because they will put you out of it. <laughs> now, here are the five categories. Clothes, books, papers, kimono, which is the kitchen, bathroom, and garage. And those three go right together, don't they? And finally, sentimental items. Yes, anything given to you by the in-laws is now clutter. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> that was great. But let me tell you how the rest of the show works. So once you gather all your items in one category, let's say clothes, then you pick up each item and you ask yourself, does this spark joy? This sparks me joy. It <laughs> brings me joy. <laughs> yeah, this definitely brings me joy. <laughs> Yep, don't need this. <laughs> Thank you so much. Joy for sure. So the show was an instant hit. Instagram postings popped up showing huge piles of stuff being carted away to Goodwill. January 11, after all eight episodes were up on Netflix for a total of 11 days, the Washington Post wrote this. Donations at D.C. area Goodwill centers were up 66% for the first week of January. At the Gatorsburg location, donations were up a whopping 372%. Marie Kondo was everywhere instantly. Her Instagram followers doubled from 710,000 to 1.4 million in a week, and now she has over 3 million. The other part of the story, though, is as they say, it's all fun and games till somebody gets hurt. It seems too much decluttering may actually not be good for all people. Researchers have found that clutter actually increases creativity, something I've kind of observed. That's why my house is so cluttered up. I'm saying that to a particular person at home who's going to listen to this episode. Kathleen Vose, who's a professor at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management, pointed out some great disorganized creative minds that have existed in history, like Mark Twain, Frida Kahlo, Thomas Edison, Martin Luther King Jr., Susan Sontag. She even mentioned Steve Jobs. And this researcher pointed out that Albert Einstein famously asked if a cluttered desk is a sign of a cluttered mind, of what then is an empty desk a sign? So let's, let's move away from that and to what you might call the physical hurt that all these garbage bags full of stuff cause, right? Initially, Goodwill loved the uptick in business, but most of the stuff that people got rid of ends up in landfills. The Guardian newspaper reported that it costs charities millions to send this stuff to the dump. These days, landfills around the world are overflowing with stuff that doesn't spark joy in condo files, which is to say KonMari could uh, realistically be called environmentally unsound. Here's a quote from GQ magazine. If it was all quality stuff, that would be one thing. But a lot of it is fast fashion. Fast fashion has no intrinsic value in the fibers. It's not designed to last. Only a tiny percentage of clothing donated to places like Goodwill goes on sale. Unusable junk is sent, as we said, to landfills. 
One critic suggested that another Japanese tradition that Kondo might want to add to her list of steps is motanai. Motanai is about reusing, repurposing, repairing, and respecting items. Okay, it's hard to imagine Kondo teaching people how to repair old shoes and bags and stuff instead of trashing them. Okay, Barry, Kanmari, decluttering, fear or fear not? Fear not. But here's a little simple idea. Stop buying all this stuff in the first place. That could really spark joy, you know? Down in Florida, we welcome you to the Sunshine State. It's time for Fear Florida, and here's the headline from the Marine Corps Times. Intoxicated Florida Marine breaks into home and cooks meal tells alarmed homeowner to go back to sleep. 19-year-old Marine Gavin Krim reportedly broke into a Florida home just after 4 a.m. Tuesday and immediately set out hurriedly exercising his perceived right to satisfy his hunger pangs at any cost. Krim eventually was confronted by the weary homeowner who was unsurprisingly alarmed to discover a stranger going full-blown Gordon Ramsay in his kitchen. The considerate Marine, understanding the importance of eight hours of rest, told the homeowner, go back to sleep. The homeowner did not comply with the inebriated REM sleep enthusiast, responding instead by threatening to call the police, prompting Krim to make a break for a life of freedom on a partially empty belly. The classic dine and dash. The police discovered the hungry Krim, whose name happens to be part of the word criminal, unsuccessfully hiding in a wooded, swampy area adjacent to the property. He was subsequently arrested and booked by the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office on felony charges of burglary in an occupied dwelling. Now, I don't know how much burglary it was, but if you ask me, this is a lousy Marine. With all due respect to the Marines, I've met many of them. Marines know how to survive. You turn a Marine loose in Florida, he's going to kill a gator. He's going to catch a chicken in Tampa. Jeez, you just go to go go to Ebor City. The chickens are walking across the street. Just grab a chicken and fry that baby up. You don't go breaking into people's houses. You do have to admire someone who's broken in your house and is cooking in your kitchen. And says, go back to sleep. That's a beautiful one. That, that's the greatest response. Ever. And, you know, if you were half asleep, you might. You might go back to bed and then you're like, wait a minute. I don't know him. <laughs> I, wow. I have only one thing to say. Fear Florida. <laughs> it is time for Barry's Fear of the Week, and this time it's climate change, lies, and misdirection. It's no secret, Alonzo, I believe that climate change is a major threat to humans and to the planet. Unlike most of what we discuss on this podcast, this is something that we should fear. It's real. It's here. And it's deadly. So as the old folk song that became the anthem for the civil rights movement put it, we need to keep our eyes on the prize. Elizabeth Warren nailed it during the CNN town hall on climate change a couple weeks ago. There are a lot of ways that we try to change our energy consumption and our pollution. And God bless all of those ways. Some of it is with light bulbs, some of it is on straws, some of it, dang, is on cheeseburgers, right? But understand, this is exactly what the fossil fuel industry hopes we're all talking about. <laughs> they want to be able to stir up a lot of controversy around your light bulbs, around your straws, and around your cheeseburgers. When 70% 
of the pollution of the carbon that we're throwing into the air comes from three industries. Well, I like what she says. And yeah, obviously, fossil fuel and energy is a big part of the problem. But what I think is a much bigger part of the problem in climate change is how many people don't believe there's climate change. That's exactly right. And why don't they believe it? It's partly that they believe people who don't know anything about it, but who are celebrities one way or another somewhere. But it's also for another reason. It's because there's a lot of distraction and obfuscation going on. It's obvious that the cost in life and real property from extreme weather is out of control. The idea that we're better off doing nothing and waiting for the next disaster instead of investing in new technologies, expanding good-paying green energy jobs, well, you know, that may be politically expedient and may be entertaining some places. But bottom line, it's based on lies. One of these is that we won't be able to reach zero net CO2 emissions without more nuclear power plants. But several recent studies outline pathways that don't rely on more nuclear energy. One of these studies was led by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that's NOAA, NOAA, and that suggested that the key to making this work is grid integration. Look, this is a big country. At any time somewhere in the U.S., it's either sunny or windy. So we have this renewable energy. The issue is getting it where it needs to be. But creating a more nimble power grid, that's going to require considerable federal investment. We did it once, we can do it again. Then there's the lie about China. You hear this all the time. China is the world's worst greenhouse emissions culprit. And yeah, China's CO2 emissions, at least as of 2017, were more than double those of the United States. But here's the catch. There are three times as many people in China as in the United States. Emissions per person, per capita in the U.S. are still far higher than in China. What you said is right. The problem is, and you mentioned politics, this unfortunately is is a partisan problem. And it's really funny, you know, there was a guy, President Trump, who said that <laughs> wind turbines cause cancer. And people believe him. Cancer from, from wind. Now, I don't know what planet they're going to live on. Unfortunately, the Democrats are looking at a real scientific problem and the Republicans are looking at a way of getting votes by making it seem like this is crazy. You know, you talk about make America great again. There are so many of these infrastructure problems, and this is just my opinion. We need to divert some of the defense money and more importantly, brain power to problems like this. We have incredibly gifted scientists and engineers designing weapons. Well, let's take some of them and design a modern power grid. Let's take the wind from the Southwest or the, the water and rainfall from, you know, a different part of the country, create power and come up with a way to spread it around. Let's, let's devote a portion of our resources to that. Okay, Barry, how do we solve it? Well, you just hit on one of the key lies and one of the key scares that the climate deniers use. And that's that it's going to cost jobs. The transitioning from renewables to fossil fuel is going to displace lots of American workers. That issue got tons of attention in that CNN town hall that we were talking about. But the reality is only a small sliver of Americans work in the fossil fuel extraction. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics counts about 50,000 in coal, about 150,000 in oil and gas extraction. That's about 
0.2% of the workforce. And if we add the additional jobs from allied businesses like refining and transportation, for example, it still represents a very small portion of the workforce. This is like saying, you know what uses less energy than cars? Horses. Let's go back to riding horses. We should all be riding horses again. Yeah, theoretically, yeah. But in reality, no, we're not going to ride horses. And guess what? We're not going to go back to a coal-powered nation. So let's move on. Let's get into other technologies. At some point, you have to stop trying to cater to people's existing ideas and explain to them there's a new reality. The reality is the clean energy sector is one of the economy's biggest growing job sectors. So we can keep mourning coal as much as we want. Washington Governor Jay Inslee, the Democrat who made climate change his top issue, said this, an endless number of jobs can be created in the climate arena. It's the way to make a real dent in income inequality and have the Democratic Party bring tangible solutions to communities in rural America that have been left behind. They're going to have to show them that by example. The Democratic Party needs to show some of these rural communities, some of these southern towns, some of these factory towns, that the factory has been converted, that it now makes something mm -hmm. more modern, that it now uses clean energy, and the people have survived and the town has survived, mm -hmm. hopefully even thrived. My friends in the Democratic Party, who are some of them are policymakers, they get really tired of me saying this. You don't invest in those areas. You're going to lose them, and you're going to lose them for a good reason. So invest in those communities, build these new energy plants, new types of energy in those communities. Bottom line, though, fear climate change and fear the lies and distractions that make it worse. We get so many great questions from you guys, we started this listener mail segment. What do we have this week, Alonzo? This one comes from Lisa in Gainesville, Florida. I read this story about a high school in California that takes cell phones away from kids. Is the educational benefit worth more than the peace of mind I have to be able to talk to my kids in an emergency? San Mateo, California High School took the demand to, quote, put your phones away during class to a whole new level. Mounting frustration over student attentiveness led administrators to institute this new policy. Nearly 1,700 students placed their phones in a yonder pouch, as it's called, that closes with a proprietary lock. School administrators unlock them at the end of the day. Academics, educators, parents, and students have lined up on both sides of this argument. On the pro side, it appears to increase attention. Kids who have phones score five points lower than kids who don't, according to this. They talk to each other at lunch. The con side of this is that not having phones creates anxiety, and so this won't curb distraction. It doesn't teach kids how to deal with cell phone distraction, which they're certainly going to have after high school. And kids use the, their phones, after all, to communicate with parents. I'm going to take the cranky old man argument on this, all right? <laughs> kids somehow made it through a school day without cell phones right up until the year 2005. But you're going to learn in life that there's times when you can use your phone and there's times when you can't. So, yeah, it's okay to take away the phones and let the kids pay attention to the teacher. I'm going to disagree with you. So I haven't taught in a few years. I've been doing other things. But when I did, you know what I did with this? I made it part of the class. I don't understand why more people don't do that. I think it's a great way to go. I would be teaching about something and I would say, 
take out your phone or stop texting your friend on your phone because here's a question for you to find the answer to. And then I would let them go look for it and figure out on their own, or I'd tell them where to go to find it online, okay? And then they'd bring it back. Sometimes I'd be real mean. Now, I was teaching college, wasn't high school, might be different, but you know what I would do? I would make it a pop quiz. And guess what? If they were texting their friends and not paying attention before that, they couldn't pass that. They wouldn't know where to look online. But I turned their phone into a teaching tool. That's what I do with it. Okay, that makes sense. But I would bet, again, you were dealing with college students who are a lot more self-motivated to learn. They're supposed to be. Well, they're paying a lot of money to be there. <laughs> right. But I think if you talk to particularly middle school teachers, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they would have a different response to this because the kids are playing on the phone. They're ignoring the teacher. Then you run into the other problem, particularly with public schools, is, okay, look up on your phones. Oh, I don't have a phone. Not every kid can afford a exactly. phone. So not every kid's going to have a phone. So that's another problem you run into in the public school system. So again, right. I think it's okay. Take away their phones while they're in class. Let them have their phones at lunch. I'm right and I win. Let's move <laughs> on. Whether or not taking away phones is a good idea, bad idea, pro or con, it's just too early to tell. There just isn't enough research. We don't know enough. But I come out on the side of leave it up to the teachers. Let them decide, they know best. But to Lisa, not being in touch with your kid, that should not be a fear. It shouldn't be a fear, it should be a welcome break. Now before we wrap up for this week, we have an update on our story about gender neutral pronouns. So you remember our story about two weeks ago that was, uh, about this topic of gender-neutral pronouns, they, them, their, instead of he or she. Well, last week, Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Sam Smith announced on Instagram that he now wants to be referred to by the pronouns they, them. He said, after a lifetime of being at war with my gender, I've decided to embrace myself for who I am inside and out. I understand there will be many mistakes and misgendering, but all I ask is that you please try. I hope you can see me like I see myself. That's up to them, what they want to be called. So if Sam Smith says, from now on, refer to me as they or them, then that's what we'll do. It takes some getting used to. It takes some practice. Even as I'm saying this, I'm trying to do it and refer to them as them, and they have a right to be them. Right. Closing time. Open all the doors and let you out into the world. It's time for a nightcap. Every week, Barry and his crack research team dig for a story that has gone viral, one that is so ridiculously outrageous that it sounds too ridiculous to be true. Or is it? And you get to guess, is this true or is it made up? Here's this week's. California woman dreamed about eating engagement ring and really ate it. I don't believe it. I say false. Okay. I will tell you why later. All right. On Tuesday, Jenna Evans was on a high-speed train that was racing down the tracks, her fiancé by her side, when some bad guys appeared. That's what she said. There was only one way to protect her 2.4-carat diamond engagement ring, swallow it. And so she did. She said, I popped that sucker off, put it in my mouth, and swallowed it with a glass of water. Then she woke up. That's right. I say it's a dream because I just can't see a woman 
disposing of a 2.4-carat diamond in any way. Well, Evans was relieved on Wednesday morning that the whole episode had just been a vivid, bizarre dream. That is, until she realized that her engagement ring was no longer on her finger. Evans, who has a history of sleepwalking, soon realized that while the bad guys in the high-speed train part had all been just from her snoozing unconscious, the consumption of her engagement ring was not. Quote, on Wednesday morning, I realized my ring was not in my hand and had to wake my fiancé up and tell him I had swallowed my engagement ring. We laughed pretty hard for about an hour and a half, called my mom, laughed until we were crying, Googled, quote, do other adults swallow rings? Evans went to an emergency care clinic where doctors decided against letting the ring pass naturally through the 29-year-old system and instead referred her to a gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist promptly performed an upper endoscopy, which is the insertion of a small camera and device down someone's throat. Evans wrote that she began to cry as she signed the release forms for the upper endoscopy, fearing she would die during the procedure and not get to fulfill her different dream, which was marrying her fiancé, someone named Bobby Howell. Then she says, I waited a long time for that damn engagement ring, and I will marry Bobby Howell, damn it. The doctors found the engagement ring in Evans' intestines just beyond her stomach. Evans said her fiancé returned the ring to her on Thursday. She said, Bobby finally gave my ring back this morning. I promise not to swallow it again. We're still getting married, and all is right in the world. If this is true, I feel for him. I still don't believe it. Sorry, Alonzo, because it's true. Well, in that case, I wish old Bobby luck. You fooled me this week, Barry. Cheers. Today is gonna be a good day Don't care what anybody else say Oh, I don't need a budget cookie to tell me If you like what you heard, hell, even if you hated what you heard, hit the subscribe button and tune in every week. Give us a five-star review to help us rise on the charts. And as always, if you hear news stories that make your hair stand on end or they sound like someone is trying to fill you with fear, send them to us at fearnotofficial.com or tweet us at fearnotofficial. And we'll see if we can uh, find the truth. Let us know what you're scared of. Fear Not is a Stone and Company entertainment production hosted by Alonzo Bowden and Dr. Barry Glasner. Executive produced by Scott A. Stone. Produced and edited by Adam Everest. Written by Scott A. Stone, Barry Glasner, and Adam Everest. Alonzo writes stuff too. Don't believe him. Our sound engineer is Tim Moore. Legal Beagles, Loeb and Loeb. Crack accountants are 10 key accounting. Special thanks to Gary Brown, Betsy Amster, and Adam's imaginary girlfriend.